We are back in the book of Matthew after a short month break. We, uh, it's technically like part session 39. Uh, we're picking up in Matthew chapter 14, which is sort of the middle of the book. So, uh, so today begins number 39 and moving onwards. We're halfway through, which means we'll be here for quite some time. Uh, if you were here with us before we took this month-long break for apologetics, you might remember we ended sort of on a sad note. So Jesus shows up to his hometown, Nazareth, and rather than being received and welcomed, he's rejected to such a degree that some people even try to kill him. So at the halfway point of the book, we left off with some bad news. Now this week, uh, it's going to be more bad news and more sadness and more sorrow. Now, fair warning for everybody, uh, today's content is heavy. It is uh, mature content, so it's not um, children's uh, Bible power time, power hour, story time. Uh, so warning to the parents, you can judge that as, the, as you will. But the content, it's in the Bible. God saw fit to preserve it for us in his word. So with that warning, let's dig in. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. This is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. So there's this ruler who's identified as a tetrarch. We'll talk about more about that in a moment. But there's this ruler named Herod who's concerned. He has a growing fear about the growing fame of Jesus. And his immediate assumption is like, this guy somehow has the powers of John the Baptist sort of back from the dead. But I, what I want us to do is focus in on these last two verses because they get us into the heart of the narrative. It says, for Herod, and go slow at this because it, you can miss a lot. This is weird. If it sounds weird to you, you're reading it right. Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias. Now you're going, okay, there's a leader named Herod, and he's doing something for someone named Herodias. Now what does Herodias sound like? That sounds like Herod. Correct. Uh, and Herodias, it says, is his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. Okay, Herodias, Herod, uh, you were the brother's wife, but now you're the current Herod's wife. So very confusing, right? So in order to understand this, we have to do some, some background information on the family of the Herods. And the Herods are, um, this isn't like the Brady Bunch family, you know? In the story, a man named Herod. It, it's not going to be like that. It's going to be really bad. So in order to understand the Herods, you have to go back and... Remember Grandpa Herod, Herod the Great. If you're familiar with the Christmas story, or you were here when we started the book of Matthew, Herod the Great, Grandpa Herod, was the Herod who murdered all male children in the region two years and under. Jesus was a perceived threat, and so anyone who was a male child two years or younger was slaughtered. That's Herod the Great. That's Grandpa Herod. Now, after Grandpa Herod died, his kingdom was split into four pieces, and he gave rulership over those pieces to his sons. That's why the son Herod in our story is called the Tetrarch. That's a technical term for someone who's ruling over a quarter of a region that was once formerly united. He's given the region of Galilee. So he's the ruler over the northern region of Galilee. 
We're also introduced to a woman named Herodias in this story. And Herodias is named after Grandpa Herod. But Herodias, it says, was married to someone named Herod Philip. Herod Philip is Herodias' uncle. So Herodias married her uncle, Herod Philip. But what this story informs us is that she left Herod Philip and married the Herod in our story, her other uncle, Herod Antipas. Now, forming this new family, she leaves Herod Philip and joins herself with her other uncle, Herod Antipas, and brings with her her daughter from the previous marriage with Herod Philip. Her daughter's name is Salome. So now there's this new family of Herod, Herodias, and the daughter, Salome, which is also the niece of Herod Antipas. And stepdaughter. Okay, you all follow that? Make sense? Okay, even, even if you didn't follow it, you're going like, what in the world is going on? Why did I share all this? What you need to know is that the Herod family, the Herodian dynasty, is filled with lust, adultery, incestuous relationships, violence, and greed. This family is vile all throughout. There is killing, uh, horrific uh, barbarism and violence. It's, it's everywhere. It's infected kind of the whole entire family, and that's the family we're dealing with. Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. So now that sort of makes sense. John the Baptist is condemning this adulterous, incestuous relationship between Herod Antipas and Herodias. He's condemning it. And so because of the pressure that Herodias puts on Herod, he locks him up and bounds him in prison. Super important here. Incredibly important. Why is John in prison? Why is John the Baptist in prison? When the highest power of the land, the ruler of Galilee, shows up, John the Baptist clearly and boldly condemns that marriage. John is in prison for speaking up on the sanctity of marriage. John the Baptist is in prison for condemning sexual immorality. Do you follow this? That's why he's in chains, for speaking boldly against sexual morality and saying this marriage should not be allowed, and he's locked up because of it. And though he, Herod Antipas, wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. It's dark. This is dark. There's lots of things going on. First thing you need to be aware of. The Gospel of Mark, which is a different biography of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, says that Herod at this birthday party, this banquet, um, invites his commanders, the military generals, the noblemen, all the important people of his region. So it's sort of like a get-together and celebration of the who's who. The military commanders are there, the noblemen are there, the rich, the famous, the powerful, they're all there. Two, uh, we know what type of parties the Herods would throw. And so this is a banquet that's filled with the best food from all the land and the best wine from all the land. The point of this is you are going to get filled with food and drunk off wine. 
Third important piece of information. We know some from historical details that likely um, at this party, the men would have been separated in one room and the women would have been separated in another room. And that's sort of why you get the back and forth between Herodias' daughter and her mom and then Herod. There's kind of this going back and forth. So all the men in one place and the women in another place. Last important information is that it would have been extremely unlikely and improbable and improper for Herodias' daughter, Salome, we don't know her name from this story, but Josephus, a first century historian, tells of this event and gives us her name. It would have been extremely unlikely and proper and probable for her to do this type of dance at this banquet. These types of dances were sensual and sexual, and most likely at these places, those types of things were reserved for the servants or the slaves. However, at Herod's place and in Herod's family, that which is perverted and vile is just commonplace. This girl we know from a technical term that's used to describe her and from some of the surrounding historical information was most likely, could be off by a little bit, was most likely uh, at the youngest, probably 12 years of age, at the oldest 16. So follow this. There is a room filled with drunk men and a young girl goes into that room and dances in some inappropriate manner. And we don't know all that happens and is entailed with this dance. All we know is that after this central dance, it says that Herod is pleased to such a degree that he gives her an oath. You know, what do you want? What do you want from my kingdom? This is a, an image of adultery, incestuous relationships, uh, evil type of dancing, a room full of drunken men looking at this young girl. And then to top it off, then she says, bring me the head of John the Baptist on a platter. When you read this, it, it almost should make you feel gross, right? Like this is, it, it, it's reviling. This is a reviling story. It's, it's gross. It's grotesque. Like you just go, oh, what is, what's, what's wrong here? That is the natural response to this story. Now what's going on? Matthew, our author, is taking two extremes and having them unite in the center. And he's doing that. And, and in so, the suspense of, is building what's going to happen. What do I mean by two extremes? There is John, the man from the desert. And then there is Herod, the man who is rich in his castle with luxury and ease of life. And they're two polar opposites. And in this story, those two extremes are brought to the center and they smash up against each other. John, what is his shelter? Where does he live? In the wilderness, in the desert. He's the wild man. Where does Herod live? In a castle. The castle was called Macarius. We know this from Josephus as well. And we, we know where the castle would have been and there was a dungeon at the bottom, bottom of it where John would have been located. But there's John, the wild man, who lives in the desert. And then Herod in a beautiful castle with luxury and wealth and power. What does John eat? John is depicted as someone who's worse than poor. He lives in the desert without mention of shelter, and his diet is bugs, locusts and honey, grasshoppers, dipped in sugary substance. That's what he eats. What does Herod eat? He has banquets filled with the best food throughout the land, the best wine throughout the land. What does John wear? How does he dress himself? The man from the desert 
clothes himself with garments made of camel skin and fur, hair. It's like just this wild image of the man who has nothing, who's just barely surviving. What does Herod clothe himself with? Well, he would have the finest robes, the finest tunics made of the best material, the best fabrics. And remember, in biblical imagery, the desert is not just a hot place. Like when you think of the desert, you think of a hot place. But, you know, some people live in the desert. They got nice homes. Some people even vacation, you know, go to Palm Springs, go to Joshua Tree. It's like it's, it's not the same image for the ancient person. The desert is the place of nothingness. It's, there's nothing there because what matters is life, food and water. And the desert doesn't have it. So there's that which is nothing. And then the man in the castle with everything. Two extremes. The man from the barren desert wasteland, John, and the man who is king in his castle. And those two images come slamming up against each other. And you are meant to think, what is going to happen? What happens when that occurs? Now, if you've been brought up in church, or you know the stories, you kind of already know what's going to happen. But you have to just try for a moment and pretend that you were reading this story for the first time. Like what's what's gonna happen? But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. It's gross. It's gross. You can ask, I can ask, answer questions after church service is done. For, that's open for anybody, by the way. I'll be answering questions after. The image is vile in every possible way. You have the adultery. You have violence in the Herodian dynasty. You have uh, the incestuous relationship. You have this, this girl who's being brought up in wickedness where she's being, being used as a tool from her, her mother to manipulate men. And you have the story ending and kind of finishing on this idea of John the Baptist's head being brought out on a platter. And that, that, that has symbolic value, right? It's not just that his head is chopped off. It's placed on a platter, a platter that usually serves food for human consumption. It's gross in every possible way. And it gets even worse because John is not just any old person. He's the last in the long line of Old Testament prophets. And Jesus actually says this. He's like, this is, he's the last of the Old Testament prophetic tradition. And on top of that, Jesus says, John, he's the best of them. No one has ever lived who's like John the Baptist. So he's the best of the best and the long ending, the climax of the Old Testament prophetic tradition. And so what happens to him? He gets his head chopped off. Now, John, again, he's the last, but he's also symbolically, he, he's a concentrated form of all the patterns and themes in the Old Testament prophets. So Moses confronts Pharaoh. Elijah confronts Ahab. John confronts Herod. Elijah dressed with wild skins like John and lived out in the wilderness for a portion of his life and had to rely on God to supernaturally provide. Likewise, John is the same. So the, 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 the prophetic tradition is sort of concentrated in the last prophet, John the Baptist, the forerunner. 
and he's killed and his head is put on a platter. So it's not just as if one man dies. It's like the Old Testament prophetic tradition has its head severed and an evil, gross display of human wickedness is put on a platter. And the disciples came and took the body and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. And you feel the weight of that? It's like, if you had not heard this story before, this was the first time. Maybe for many of you, it is the first time. It's like, what in the, this is in the Bible? Yeah. So in this, this darkness and this weight, there is this, this small glimmer of hope that comes through though. Because the disciples get the body of John and they bury it and then they go tell someone. Who do they tell? They go to Jesus, which is like this little glimmer of hope breaking through. Oh, oh, there, there's another. Wait, there's another? I thought the Old Testament line was finished in John. That's the last. Jesus said that. And it's like, no, no, no. There's something new. This would almost be like, um, you can almost picture it in the movie. Like picture uh, Galadriel's voice in Lord of the Rings, uh, the old Peter Jackson trilogy, not the, not the new uh, nonsense. Um, we, uh, the, you could picture like, and evil had its triumphant day, their crowning achievement. They thought they killed the last of the prophets, but all of them were deceived for there was yet another the Nazarene, Jesus. And it's like, oh, there's another. This is sort of what's happening. The Old Testament tradition has ended in a brutal, horrific way, but there's another. There's another prophet. But why is John the last in the Old Testament prophetic tradition? Because Jesus is a prophet, but he's in a whole nother category. He's not a prophet according to Moses. He's a prophet from heaven. He's a priest, but he's not a priest according to Mosaic law or Mosaic covenant. His priesthood predates the Mosaic Covenant. And so there's another person in a whole other category who is a prophet and a priest and a king, but from different order and different origins. And so this small baby glimmer of hope in the person of Jesus. Now, this just isn't like, oh, things went bad and now Jesus has to step on the scene. This is the plan from the beginning, right? What did John say? I must decrease in order that he might increase. In the beheading of John, you think you've destroyed the Old Testament tradition, but actually this is where the Old Testament tradition was leading all along. The forerunner was pointing to the Messiah, the true prophet, priest, king. Okay, now I wanna come back, talk about some things that are really easily missed, incredibly easy to miss. If you're reading this story, You think that the person who ought to be afraid is John the Baptist. He's in a prison, in a dungeon. He he doesn't know what type of torments await him. He doesn't know what type of suffering awaits him. He doesn't know what type of death awaits him. Like, he should be afraid. And I'm not saying he has no fear, but it's fascinating. In the story, the fear of John, it's, it's not mentioned. It's not discussed. The person who you think ought to be afraid at least in the story, isn't showing any fear. And the person who you think should have the most power and freedom and the person who is least likely to be afraid is actually the person who is terrified. So who's most afraid in our story? Herod is most afraid. The tyrant is most afraid. 
he's afraid of the fame of Jesus. That's how the story starts. Like, what's going on? There's this new guy named Jesus. Is this John the Baptist coming back to get me type of thing? He's also afraid of John. It says that he kind of wants to kill John the Baptist, but, but he's afraid because John is, he, he kind of knows deep down John is a righteous man. He's afraid of Herodias' wife. His wife is, is manipulating and using her, 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 her kind of daughter to, to ensnare him. He's afraid of his people. Remember, he said he would have killed John the Baptist, but he's afraid of what the people think. I don't know what the people will think. If I, if I do this, if I do what my wife wants, she'll be happy. But then the people over here will not be happy because they know he's a prophet. He's also afraid of his guest. Because after he makes the oath to give Salome whatever she wants, and she comes back with the request for the head of John the Baptist, what does it say Herod's response is? He's sorry. He's sorry, but he goes through with it. Why? All the important people are there. His generals, the noblemen, the rich and powerful, they're all there. They're loving it. And he can't show weakness to them. He can't bring shame to his name and to his crown in the midst of all the important people. So he cowers under fear of shame. And so here is a man who is afraid of the people, things in his marriage, the noblemen, the military leaders. He's being manipulated and, and he's, he's being enslaved to all of these fears. And it's the inverse of what you ought to expect. Who is most afraid? The man in the castle is. The man in the castle is the one who is terrified. And this is the story of every tyrant. People who hold on to, to power with corruption. There's always, you always got to look behind your back. Who's going to stab you next? What army is going to rise up over here? What issue is going to come up over here? You're always afraid of something. And Herod is a man who's controlled by fear and anxieties. He's enslaved to it. And so there's this, this weird sense in which John is less fearful than Herod. And there's another weird thing going on where you kind of ask yourself, who is, who is most free in this situation? I mean, in one sense, clearly Herod is more free. He's the king. He's not in a dungeon. He's not locked up. He's not in chains. But in, a, in, a, in another sense, John is more free in that prison cell than Herod the king. Because Herod is enslaved to fears and anxiety. He's always looking out. He's not able to do what he wants. He's trapped. He's ensnared. So it's this weird story that flips our categories of fear and freedom and, and conscience upside down. Now, John was able to do this bold move to speak to, to this corrupt marriage. This is an adulter adulterous, illegal, incestuous relationship. And he speaks boldly and clearly. And that just doesn't like happen overnight. John has spent his life living in fear of God and not men. So he, see, he seeks to please the Lord and not please the world or please people around him. He trusts God. So when John is out there in the wilderness, is he worried about shelter? Maybe a little bit, but he ultimately trusts God. He's not enslaved to that fear. Is he worried about food? There's going to be food tomorrow. Maybe a little bit, but he's not enslaved to that fear. God will provide. I got bugs, man. I'm cool. And when people start coming out to hear him preach, does he tickle their ears with things they want to hear? Let me just say what they let me just say what the people want to hear. No, he says, you have to repent. 
you need to repent and be baptized for sins. There's wickedness in your heart. He could have tickled. He could, come on, tell you what you want to hear. No. And he does that consistently time and time again so that when it really came down to it, when the highest power in the land shows up and there's this evil, vile wickedness going on, he could look those people in the eye and say, this marriage is unlawful. It's based upon adultery and wickedness. Even if it cost him his life, even if he knows it might cause him much suffering. Now, John developed that his whole life, probably because his parents saturated, with, saturated him with the Hebrew scriptures and Hebrew wisdom. From when John was a young boy, he was brought up in the traditions of his people, reading what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, reading about wisdom. And so you could almost picture his mom, Elizabeth, or his father, Zechariah, like telling John, John, remember where wisdom begins. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And you picture his dad like putting his hand on his head, maybe rubbing his, his fingers through his hair. John, this will never fail you. You stick to this no matter what, even if it costs you. Fear God, not men. Hold to that truth. And he grows up breathing those scriptures in, saturating himself in those. So that when the time comes, he fears God more than he does men. Now, I want to pause here for a moment because um, whenever we talk about fearing God, we have to clear up a lot of things because there's so much confusion surrounding that. And so what I'd like to do is take us back to when Jesus actually talked about fearing God several months ago when we covered Matthew chapter 10 because Jesus addresses it clearly. But one of the things that happens sort of kind of in the modern church world when we talk about fearing God or the fear of the Lord is we immediately try to lessen the degree at which we ought to fear God. So if you grew up in church, you probably heard something like this. Someone was reading the Bible and says, make sure to fear God. And they're like, now what it means is you don't really fear God. Don't really be afraid. He's, a, he's like totally a nice guy. He's never going to do anything that will upset you. What it means is to have a healthy respect for him right? I'm exaggerating a little bit, but most of you, if you grew up in church, have a healthy respect. Take off your hat if he, he will rock through the door. And look, you should have a healthy respect for God. But whenever the Bible talks about fearing God, guess what it sounds like? It sounds like being afraid of God. It's like everywhere. This is how Jesus speaks of it. Jesus, um, has just told his disciples that because of, if they follow him, they are going to face suffering and persecution. And they will have to give up many things. They'll have to give up things that they know and things that they love. It'll cost them everything. It's like carrying a cross. And then he says, when the people come to persecute you, have no fear of them. Have no fear of them. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill body, but, but, cannot, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Are not one of, the, not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore you are more value than many sparrows. Okay, there, there's an there's a inner logic to this. Don't fear them, the people who can come and kill you. Don't fear them. Fear God. 
Verse 31, therefore, don't be afraid. Fear not, therefore. So, don't fear them. Fear God. Fear not. Now, how does this work? Okay. First, we have to note how Jesus describes fearing God. Because he says, don't, 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 fe- don't fear the people who may come and hurt you. You should fear God. Now, tell me if this sounds like uh, taking off your hat. Like, or, or having a healthy respect for God. Verse 28. Do not fear those who kill the body, but can kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. That's heavy. That's heavy. These are the words of Jesus. If you're a Christian, these are the words of our Lord. Fear him who could destroy both body and soul in hell. Now, why ought we fear God? Because he's good. Because he's good. He is far more good than you can understand. Now, first, this might sound confusing. Like, wait, God is so good, why am I afraid of him? It's based upon the idea that God is so good that he will not let wickedness get away with it. God is so good, he will not let evil get away with it. Evil, sin, wickedness will face judgment in this lifetime or the next. Meaning, there's something in your life that you're not dealing with it. God will discipline you. God will bring things in your life to discipline you. And if for some reason you so happen to be one of these people who get away with evil your whole life, there will be a day where you have to look the Holy One in the eyes and give an account for your behavior. That's heavy, man. Now, that's good though. Because it says God is so good. He's so committed to his, to his own goodness that he's not going to let evil run the day. He's committed to making sure justice is is coming throughout all of creation. Justice will be done. Goodness will win. God will triumph. And so the presence of God is holy. It's like a purgative fire. It consumes evil that goes before it. And so, why is that super important for you to know? Because it'll keep you in check when you don't feel like it. Let me say what I mean by that. Explain what I mean by that. There are days um, when maybe you wake up in the morning and you're like, the first thing that comes to your mind, oh God, you are so good. I want to praise and worship you all throughout the day. You begin your morning, you pray for two hours straight. Uh, You're fasting that day too. You're reading the Bible. Lord, my affections and my desires are so set on you. I desire nothing outside of your presence. Lord, I love you. But you also know that there are plenty days when you don't feel like that. There are some days you want to do things that you ought not to do. Some days you want to fall back into old behavioral patterns of sin. And you know what's a good healthy thing to have? A good healthy fear of the Lord that says, I want to do that because God won't let me get away with it. If you are a Christian, God loves you and he will discipline you. God ain't going to let me get away with it, so I better deal with it now before he deals with it. And to an unbelieving world that may be committed to evil, you won't get away with it forever. Every corruption, every evil deed that people got away with will face the holy judge. And he will do right. He will bring justice. See, there is a good that is so good that when you reflect upon it, you realize that you have more in common with evil than that goodness. 
when you reflect on the goodness and holiness of God, you will inevitably come to the conclusion, I don't have anything in common with. That goodness is in a whole different category. I have more in common with stuff over here. And so you check yourself and you say, God doesn't let you get away with it forever. I will have to give an answer. So let me keep me in, let that keep me in check. Let's illustrate this. Let's say there's a, there's a teenage boy, 15 years of age, and his dad says, Hey, when I come home from work, the room better be clean. Better clean your room, boy. And the son, you know, of course, doesn't clean the room. Dad comes home typically at 6.30, it's 5.45, and then the son goes, I got 45 minutes, man, before dad comes home. I better clean my room. Now, in a, in a perfect, like you might, in a perfect world, you might be saying, he's just cleaning his room not to get in trouble. And there's this weird modern thing that it's in the church too where we go, yeah, his motivation isn't pure, so he needs to, to make sure his heart is right. Look, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. It's not the end goal. Like in a perfect world, you would have a teenager that would say, dad told me to clean my room and is with my joy and delight, I go to order my room because I know he's giving me the wise and just rule for my flourishing and my benefit. He believes in me and wants the best. Like if that's your kid, God, God bless you, man. Just have a great day, okay? The rest of this maybe not applies. Look. So when you don't have those feelings where everything's good, a good healthy fear of dad's like, dad's gonna come home and I don't wanna get in trouble. I'm gonna better clean my room, I got 45 minutes. That's still a good thing. That's still a good thing. When you're driving and you see a sign that has a 65 on it, most of you, because I know Bay Area drivers, most of you, not all of you, but most of you, you're not going 65 or under on the freeway. What? And you're not saying, oh, look at the, the stop sign, 65. That is because my wise, good, and just, good government has established laws to bring about safety and flourishing for both me, the driver, and the drivers on the road next to me. You go, man, I don't want to get a ticket. And then what do you do? If you're driving and you're over the speed limit and you see someone with the power and authority to get you in trouble, police officer, what do you do? What do, what do you see magically appear? Brake lights everywhere. It's Christmas. There's brake lights everywhere. It's Christmas. Brake lights, man. Because, you know, I don't want to get in trouble. I don't want to get a ticket. Now, you might be saying, well, again, that's not the right and most pure motivation. That doesn't matter. Not getting a ticket and driving safely is actually important. And if the fear of a ticket causes you to be in check, that's a good thing. It's the beginning of wisdom. It's not the end of wisdom but it sure is a good place to start. Now, Jesus gives us this hard-hitting kind of fear God, fear God type thing, but then he balances it. Listen, verse 29. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? The word for penny here in Greek is a sarion. It's, it's like one-sixteenth of a denarii, and in long story short, basically what we're saying is you could buy two sparrows in this time for about an hour's worth of labor. And in an agrarian kind of poor society, to be like, those two birds are worth nothing, that's saying something. So Jesus brings up this example. Look, you could buy two of these sparrows. Everyone thinks they're worthless. You can get two of them. It's like two for a dollar, special at the temple type of thing. You get two of these sparrows for a penny. They're worthless. But 
Not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father knowing. Because his eye is on the sparrow, he knows the sparrow, and he values the sparrow. That which is worth nothing to the world is valued by God. And then verse 30, Don't you know even the hairs on your head are all numbered? Fear not, therefore you are of more value than many sparrows. If God is so loving that he cares for what the world considers useless, the sparrow, how much more is he going to care for his people, his image bearers? He knows the hairs on your head. He loves you. You are of extreme importance and value. So let's go back to the inner logic. Don't fear men. Fear God. But don't you know that the God whom you fear so loves you and so values you? So to the teenage boy, clean your room. Listen to your dad. He wants what's best for you. He's trying to have you keep some order in your life. He wants what's best for you. He believes in you. He sees all that you can be. And so as Christians, we don't fear world or men. We fear God because he is the chief authority. But coming out of that and flowing out of it is this wonderful, beautiful idea that he's not only good, righteous, and true, but he's good and loving and faithful and forgiving. Don't fear men. Fear God. Therefore, don't be afraid. Now, this is extremely important because this is how you begin to develop moral courage and moral fortitude. You consistently do the right thing, even in the small things. See, most people think morality works like, um, I, you know, I know that I would do the right thing if it came down to it. And, and that's not how the way it works. Like, you have moral muscle, if you will, and you have to work that moral muscle out. So you don't just go to the gym and bench. You've never trained a day in your life and you go to the gym and you bench 350. You don't do that. If, you do, if, you ha- if you've ever done that, you're like top one percentile in the whole world and you need to commit your life to this because you could probably be a champion type of thing. You don't just walk into the gym and bench press 350. You train again and again and again and again and again and you build that muscle so that you could lift heavier weights. Likewise, moral courage and fortitude is a muscle that has to be worked. You have to consistently do the right things, building moral character and integrity so that if ever there came a day where doing the right thing will cost you something, you would still do it. John has done this his whole life so that when it came down to it, he looks the highest power in the land and says, not so. That didn't happen overnight. See, we, we often think, and this is... This is in the church too. It's not just outside of the church. We think like, you know, if it really came down to it, I would do the right thing. I know I would. It's like you got this going on in your life. You're, you're not doing the right thing here. You're not doing the right thing here. You're, you're compromising here. You're doing some, some stuff you shouldn't hear. No, but I know that if it really came down to it, I would look deep inside and find the spark of goodness of my own soul that will kindle the flames of moral courage. And no, you won't. You won't do the right thing. You don't just magically do the right thing when it costs you something, when you're not building moral fortitude and courage. That has to be worked. John spent his life doing this. We always tend, we always like to think we're different. No, it's like, come on. We don't even demonstrate patience to loved ones during the holidays and we think we're going to be morally upright when our life is on the line, it ain't going to happen. We don't even show patience to loved ones on baby Jesus' birthday, on Christmas. There's fighting and stuff. You know what I mean? 
Some of you are going, no, my family's perfect. Some of you are going, yeah, that's why we don't even go to the family anymore for Christmas. If you're a student of history, you know time and time again, people who thought they would do the right thing when the moment came, don't. Review the last hundred years of history and look at any time there's a genocide. You have supposedly good people living normal lives, living good lives, and they turn a blind eye to horrible, atrocious evil. So you build that muscle. You do the right thing. You learn to fear God. I'm going to fear God and not men. I'm going to commit to that. And as you do that, your affections and your love will be turned to the Lord. And then doing the right thing is a joy, but that's a process. And it begins with fear of God. I want to um, share a story that I shared with you several months ago because it maps upon today's story better than when we talked about this several months ago. If you were here for Matthew chapter 10, I shared the story of, uh, of, a, of a guy named Pastor Wang Yi. He's in prison in China. Um, he spoke uh, against the communist regime, against the human rights atrocities that were going on. He's a Christian minister and he faithfully preached the gospel. And he's, again, he's been in prison now for six, seven years. Um, but he knew what he was doing would cause immense suffering in his life. And he knew that he would be imprisoned. He knew that he'd be taken away from his wife and kids. Nevertheless, he continued boldly proclaiming the gospels and speaking out against evil that he was seeing. Before he was taken, he wrote this, this open letter to his church and by extension, sort of the world. And I want to show you some of the things that he says again, because this story maps upon John the Baptist and Herod's story perfectly. This story is like a modern embodiment of all the themes. Remember, fear and freedom. Who's afraid? Who's truly free? Who's the real authority? Think about all those themes, and this maps upon it perfectly. As a pastor, my disobedience is one part of the gospel commission. Christ's great commission requires of us great disobedience. The goal of disobedience is not to change the world, but to testify about another world. So he's not just saying, I'm going to disobey the government because I'm going to be, you know, be against a man. He's like, no, there's evil going on, and I want to point people to another world and another king. I also understand that this happens to be the very reason why the communist regime is filled with fear at a church that is no longer afraid of it. Who's afraid? Is it, maybe we used to be afraid. But in knowing Jesus, we have lost some of those fears. This is the very reason why the communist regime is filled with fear at a church that is no longer afraid of it. Separate me from my wife and children, ruin my reputation, destroy my life and my family. The authorities are capable of doing all of these things. However, no one in this world can force me to renounce my faith. No one will make me change my life. I hope God uses me by means of first losing my personal freedom to tell those who deprive me of my personal freedom that there is an authority higher than their authority and there is a freedom that they cannot restrain. A freedom that fills the church of the crucified and risen Jesus. So, make no mistake, it's not as if he's truly free in every sense. He's in prison, just like John. So, he loses his personal freedom. He makes that clear. I am losing personal freedom. However, I want you to know that there is a freedom that cannot be stopped. And it's a freedom that fills the church of the crucified and risen Jesus. The person who interrogates me 
will eventually be interrogated by Christ. With this in mind, the Lord has made me sympathetic and sad to those who are trying and who are holding me. Ask the Lord to use me and give me patience and wisdom to bring the gospel to them. So you follow this. It's, he's saying, I am being interrogated, but those who do me wrong will one day have to answer to God. And that is, he doesn't bring that up like, and so, yeah, I know they're going to get it. It's pray for me that I might be able to faithfully tell them of the love and mercy of Jesus Christ. Because I don't want them to go as evil, unrepented people and face the holy and goodness of God. The holiness and goodness of God. So pray for me. And you see how the story is like fear and freedom and who's the ultimate authority. It maps upon it perfectly. And I don't want to uh, sugarcoat this or water it down. It's not as if John the Baptist or Pastor Wang Yi have no fears and they're having a great time in prison. They're freedom and they're dancing in the freedom of the Lord. That's not what I'm saying. Because in one sense, they have lost their freedom and there's great reason to be afraid. But they take their fears and anxieties and bring them before the ultimate judge and submit them and say, even though I might fear earthly consequences, I will fear God more. I will be obedient until the end. And in doing so, they do have a sense of freedom that those who are controlled by fear, sin, and anxiety do not. There's one last thing. It's kind of weird. It's mysterious. Where is Jesus in this story? And yeah, at the end, they go and tell Jesus that John died. But this is the only story in the Gospel of Matthew that isn't primarily directly concerned with Jesus. Because this little side story about what happened to John the Baptist. And we want those for all sorts of characters in in the Gospel of Matthew, right? Wouldn't you have liked... And this was Joseph's backstory. Here's the prequel. Here's Mary, how she grew up. No, whenever those new characters show up, they serve... Their function is to do something with Jesus. So Joseph, an angel comes to you, you're going you're gonna to be the father of Jesus. This is his name. It's the st- Matthew's story is about Jesus. All the way through, it's about Jesus. But there's one time where this excursus, this, this side mission, a side plot develops. And it's concerned with John the Baptist. It's like, huh, like, wh- where's Jesus in this? How is this about Jesus? Matthew is always telling the stories about Jesus. Why not this one? So you ask yourself, like, what, why? What, what's the case? And it's because when you reflect on it long enough, you'll realize, oh, this, act, this actually is about Jesus. This is the great foreshadow of the forerunner. The story of the forerunner, John the Baptist, foreshadows the Messiah. John the Baptist will be taken by the corrupt tyrant, not given justice, a proper trial, and will be executed. And what is true of the forerunner will ultimately be true of the one who he points to. Just as John contended with the tyrant, Jesus Christ will contend with the tyrant, the three-headed monster tyrant of Satan, sin, and death. And Jesus will die an unjust death But the message of the gospel is that Jesus contends with the tyrant, not just to to randomly beat some evil force, but he's doing so on behalf of sinful men and sinful women. 
Jesus dies the slave's death in order that he might give true freedom, freedom from Satan's sin and death to rebellious people like you and me. Christ goes on our behalf to fight the tyrant. He goes into death just like John, but rather than go into death, he comes out in power and glory and resurrected might. And in doing so, he defeats the powers. Christ dies the slave's death so that you can be free from sin. And now he offers you grace, forgiveness, and mercy. So where is Jesus in this story? It's like, no, this, this, is, this is the same story. Now, we're going to transition to communion, but be- before we do that, I, I want to set this up with, with one question for you, one challenge, if you will. When you hear a message like this, oftentimes you could be at the end, or it, everyone responds differently. But some of you are like, yes, we have a bunch of moral weaklings. Everyone needs to get their act together. And then some of you are like, oh my gosh, I'm trying so hard, but I'm failing here and I'm failing there. And oh, oh my goodness. So you have people who are like, man, I'm, yeah, give it to all these weaklings. And then people who are like, yes, I, I'm, I don't know what to do. My Okay. The point of this is not to say, John feared God. Look how awesome he was. Pick yourself up by your own moral bootstraps and become a better person. Because uh, if you go try to be the better per- person, like you're not, you don't have the power in and of yourself to do it. Like just try to be good all of the time. Try it. It's very difficult. So what does the scriptures teach us? That Christ dies on our behalf. He resurrects in power and glory. And then he sends us his spirit, his presence. And his spirit is the presence that empowers us to daily contend with sin. To grow more and more Christ-like with every passing day. To bear more good fruit. To look more holy. To be more like Jesus. And so it's not this, oh, I'm just going to be so morally strong all by myself. It is I've received a power from heaven. A power from on high. God has given me his spirit. And so what I want you to do as we close is understand that every day we're making small decisions. Sometimes the, the moral decisions are weighty and heavy. Sometimes there's just, they're just small things. They're just small things. But what you need to commit to is doing the right things, saying, God, empower me through your spirit reveal to me maybe small areas that i'm compromising in and i could build moral courage and character in those things so that then i could deal with the bigger things and maybe god is calling you to deal with a massive thing right now there's some massive moral issue in your life that you need to deal with fair enough god's spirit can be convicting you right now of that but also just think of the small things let me let me show you how this works When we don't do the right thing with small things, it, it's the opposite of building moral strength. We're actually committing ourselves to weakness. So let's say, I'll give you, there's a thousand different examples, but I'm going to give you one. You're watching a, a entertainment. If you're watching entertainment. You're watching a TV show that you got glued to. And now some of, some of the content, you're like, I'm kind of feeling uncomfortable with this. I probably shouldn't be watching this. Like, I'm a Christian type of thing. But, oh, man, the story's so good. I'm getting, like, sucked in, man. This is good. And you kind of watch some episodes. Uh, you kind of feel, I probably shouldn't have done that. But now you've crossed that line. And I'm going to watch the next couple episodes. And then it gets, the series gets more inappropriate. But you're in a little bit more. And now, pretty soon, 
you're watching stuff and consuming entertainment that the five years ago version of you would say, I, as a Christian, I don't want to see this stuff. And now you're just doing it. And by the way, that attack begins when you're children. And it's especially happening to, to our children. So you got access to digital devices and entertainment and whatever you want to see. So kids that are eight, nine, and 10 are seeing things that they shouldn't. And then by the time they're teenagers, they're looking at all kinds of pornography. And then by the time they're adults, they're addicted to pornography. And then you look at it as a culture as a whole, and you wonder why there's so much adultery going on. So it, it doesn't, it's not just that you're not becoming strong, it's making you morally weaker. And so maybe for you, it's what you're watching. Maybe it's the way you spend your money. Maybe it's the way you're treating your spouse, your kids. I don't know. But what I want us to do as we transition to communion and closing this service is pick one thing. Every single person can pick one thing that's, Lord, I don't think I'm being faithful and loyal to you in this area. By your spirit, empower me to submit this to you. Let's stand as we take communion. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he said, this is my body, it's given for you. Christ gives up his body for us. We fear him because he's holy and righteous, but we love him because he's good, gracious, and merciful. If you doubt your worth before him, you doubt that you're worth less than the sparrow, today you remember this is how much you are worth. The body of our Lord Jesus Christ, broken for us. Likewise, Jesus takes the cup of the blood of the new covenant. And we like to, to say this is our way to re-pledge our allegiance to Jesus. And so whatever thing that came to your mind, maybe a small area that you could, could give to God, you can, you can fear him and not men, something you could get, whatever that is, as we take this, we are pledging our allegiance to our King. So Lord, by your spirit, empower us to make us more like your son, Jesus. Now, Father, as we close in worship with this final song, may we set our eyes upon your Son. We recognize Jesus is beautiful, good beyond measure. He is holy. He is true. And we love him and worship him today. In Jesus' name, amen.